The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It's good to be with all of you again tonight as we continue our journey through the book of Zephaniah. And I pray that those who missed last week, uh, you can catch it online to get more of a, we did a brief introduction on the book itself. We looked at some history, we looked at the overall theme of the book of Zephaniah, and so I would encourage you to check that out if you missed last week. And then we walked through verses 1 through 6. Tonight, we are going to be looking at the end, uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 7 through the end of the chapter, through verse 18. And now we are moving into a section of Zephaniah that, quite frankly, moves into a, a, a very serious tone from the Lord. He's now moving into the main idea of this message that he's delivering, and that is what we talked about last week of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And in that day, it's a twofold application. Number one, it is bringing judgment. It's bringing judgment on the people of Judah. And as we will unpack in these verses, it is not light. It's not sometimes easy to even swallow as we're reading it, uh, as we read these verses here just a moment, because God takes serious sin. He's taking very serious the sin that Judah has committed against a holy God, against himself. And the second part that we're going to find even this evening in these verses is that even though punishment is coming, even though the day of the Lord is bringing severe punishment upon the people of Judah, there is still the, the heart from Zephaniah to call the people to repent, to repent and believe in Yahweh. And so we see both sides of the coin this evening, and we're going to see it very much unfold in these verses as we close out chapter 1. And so if you will, let's read, starting in verse 7, we'll go through the end of the chapter, and then we will have a time of prayer, and we'll start our journey through, through this um, to the end of the chapter. And tonight we will be walking through, I have three points. Last week I only had two. Because y'all wanted three, I'm giving you three. I can just, I can feel it. Y'all need three to mark the Trinity. And so tonight we'll look at God's proclamation of the judgment. Then we'll move into his, the specific punishment that he puts on the people of Judah. And then, like I said, towards the end, of, um, there is a call to repent and believe a call to repent and believe that comes from the Lord. And that's what we'll look at uh, this evening. So let's read, starting in verse 7. Zephaniah, uh, starting here, the verse 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's houses with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. A wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. 
all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will, do, will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On that day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy and all the earth shall be consumed for, all, for, for a full and sudden end he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Pretty Strong language from the Lord. Pretty strong language. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's look at what God is saying of this day of the Lord. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the grace that you have given to us. Lord, most importantly for the grace extended to us by faith in Jesus. Father, I pray tonight that the sweetness of Christ, Lord, the, the infinite personalness of the gospel will ever be on the forefront of our minds and our hearts tonight. Lord, help the gospel be afresh, Lord, in this hour of sitting underneath the teaching and the authority of your word. I pray, Lord, that you will, your spirit will move in this place, that, Lord, you will continue to help us to grow in grace, continue to help us to be made in the conformity of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us again to see your honor and your glory that's at stake here even in this day of the Lord, and bringing judgment upon Judah. So, Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's good name. Amen. Look with me in this first point of God's proclamation of judgment, his proclamation of the day of the Lord. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 together. The prophet starts off, as you can tell there in verse 7, to be silent before the Lord, to be silent before the Lord. The Hebrew word there for silent means literally to hush to be quiet before authority. It's very similar of the tone that we would see a parent give to a child. Hush, be quiet. It's the idea of listening to authority. If one of, one of authority is coming and telling you to be quiet, that's the idea that we see here. It, but this silence is not before man. It's not before Zephaniah, even though he's, he's obviously there bringing this message. But who is this message coming from? The Lord. It's Yahweh. And that's already the trajectory that we see the prophet is directing the attention to the people of Judah. Be silent before, look at there in verse 7, the Lord God. That is the sovereign Lord. It is the divine name of Yahweh, but also showing us his lordship. It's showing that he is master. He is ruler over the people of Judah. So before the sovereign Lord, you Judah are to be silent. This idea of calling the people to be silent is also in the minor prophets as well. I would call your attention to Habakkuk chapter 2. You don't have to flip there. It's just the chapter, or excuse me, the book before Zephaniah 
Habakkuk says, tell all the earth, keep silence before him, him being Yahweh. This idea of silence is also seen further back into the Old Testament. Again, you can see it in Exodus chapter 14, when Moses tells the people of Israel to be silent before the Lord right when they are on the coastline of the Red Sea. Remember, they're scared, Israel, they're terrified, and Moses gets up and says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. So a similar idea, very much of an echo of Moses Habakkuk here in Zephaniah 1.7. But think about silence. It's humbling, isn't it? No matter if you're a kid or especially, I would call, a, a, to an adult, to hear someone to tell you to be quiet. To be quiet. And it's very much humbling because when you realize the context and the audience before Zephaniah, it's before men and women, it's before rich and poor, it's before people who are in authority, people who are not in authority. It's in all classes of people that the prophet is directing the attention of the people of Judah to say, be silent before the Lord. And this day, excuse me, and this silence that he's calling the people to attention to is for the day of the Lord is near. That's what he's wanting the people of Judah to direct their attention to, this day that is near. And I think this day, of the near, this day that is near, the day of the Lord, excuse me, is near because it has a, a threefold application. Number one, and most importantly, it is for God's glory to be seen, for the glory of God to be seen. Now you're probably saying, Kenny, where do you see that? Because as we have seen already, People have trampled on his honor and his glory. People have not bowed down to him as we see in verse 6 or inquired of the Lord. He is jealous as we see in verses 17 and 18 for his glory. And so his, that jealousy is burning hot from Yahweh himself. And so he's wanting the name, his name to be honored. And that's what we see on this day of the Lord. Number two, it's a future day. It's a prophetic day, an eschatological day that Zephaniah is pointing to. And we'll unpack that here in more detail as well. And, and as well, there is the third aspect, and that is this day of the Lord is near, i.e. coming in the next couple of years, so to speak, for the people of Judah. And that's the application that we see here from this day of the Lord. And we are going to unpack all three of those as we go through the remaining verses. But now in this proclamation, look at the description that he's using as he's judging Judah. Look in verse 7, the tail end of verse 7. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now sacrifices. If you know the Old Testament, you know that sacrifices are an everyday occurrence for the people of Israel. You know they are calls for, are called to worship, but they are also to atone for sin. There's sacrifices of praise, of thanksgiving. We see constantly, especially in Exodus and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, sacrifices over and over and over again that the people of Israel are called to direct to Yahweh. But if you notice here, this is a different type of sacrifice. There's not a bull being presented. There's not a goat being presented. This sacrifice is of people. It's people. Pretty severe language that we see here. And it is vital importance for us to see that the sacrifice that is being prepared are those people who have turned their back 
on the Lord. Verse 6, those who do not seek the Lord or inquire for him. Those in verse 4 who have turned to worship Baal, those idolatrous priests. In verse 5, those who are worshiping the stars that are in the heavens, that are swearing by Milcom. These are the people that have turned their back on the Lord, and those unbelieving people are the ones who are being prepared for the sacrifice. Again, I warned you, it's not easy language that we are finding here in this judgment that Zephaniah is bringing. I would invite you just briefly to turn over to Leviticus. Leviticus, and that is towards the beginning half of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. One day, Grant and I will do a sermon series of the book of Leviticus, and it will bless your heart. Um, Leviticus, whether you want to admit it or not, it's when you come to your yearly Bible reading plan, and you go, okay, deep breath, and here we go. So Leviticus, chapter 7, chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading starting in verse 11, but I'm going to be, if you will catch how I'm going through verse 11 through 21, starting in verse 11, chapter 7, and this is the law of the sacrifice, the peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. He who offers it for a thanksgiving, and then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unlimited loaves mixed with oil, unlimited wafers smeared with oil, and loaves with fine flour. Verse 14, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering, notice the words, as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. Now, if you will, flip down starting in verse 17. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Look down in verse 21. And if anyone who touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanliness or unclean beast, or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats of some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Turn back over to Zephaniah 1. What Leviticus shows us is this idea of the right sacrifice before the Lord, but also this sacrifice that, de- that, that demands one who is bound to the Lord to what he is offering. And this binding to the Lord is obviously showing that God demands righteousness. This is what this sacrifice is bringing. But also you see, God is serious. Those who take to the table and eat unclean, they're not allowed. They cannot come. And these are the people who Zephaniah is describing here that are being offered as a sacrifice. Move further. Who can come to this prepared sacrifice? Consecrated guests. And what are these consecrated guests? Those who love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. Deuteronomy 6. It is those that we saw in Leviticus, even in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verses 15 and even through 20 that we read, even though we skimmed over it, those who have removed themselves from uncleanliness. And of course, the third that Zephaniah is hitting over and over and over again are those who are practicing true faith and obedience to Yahweh. Those are the people who can come to the sacrifice. Those are the genuine followers of the sovereign Lord. And then it gets a little more serious with this proclamation of the day of the Lord. Look what's describing in this day. Look with me in verse 8. He goes into more detail of what this proclamation is, is punishing. 
that had Lord sacrifice. I will punish the officials and the king's sons. Zephaniah is punishing the former kings before Josiah. Now, the historical side of Zephaniah is just fascinating. There's been dear brothers in here that have even sent me historical um, information in regards to the context of what Zephaniah is, has been written, and it is absolutely fascinating to see it. But I wish we could dive more into that. But let me give you just a little foretaste of glory divine to see this idea of what is the historical context of this judgment. Amon, Josiah's predecessor, does evil. He leads the people of God in the way, the evil ways as that's being described of idolatry, false sacrifices, and so on. Manasseh, he leads, he leads the people into idolatry and even leads into the, innocent, just, uh, the shedding of innocent blood in 2 Kings chapter 21. If you look at the Chronicles and if you look at the book of, uh, book of Kings, you will find that the evil kings outweigh the good kings. But remember, who wanted a king? Israel. Israel wanted a king. They wanted a man to lead them. And this is, they are reaping what they have asked for here with those previous kings and even the predecessors of Josiah. And they are bringing judgment on the people of Judah. Let me give you a point of application here. Leadership matters. Leadership matters. Again, we could spend more time on the previous kings before Josiah. We can even speak more on his predecessors. But the reality is this. Those leaders affected the lives of the people, but most importantly, the heart of the people. Called them people to lead into idolatry, false worship, false teaching. We see that over and over and over again. Instead of good leadership that we find as the good kings like Josiah trying to bring reform and bring people back to Yahweh, to the worship of Yahweh, where we see Josiah fearing the Lord and honoring the Lord's word, what we find in those evil kings is repeated over and over and over again, like an evil broken record, like an annoying song that you hear your kids playing over and over and over again, like wheels on the bus for me. It's that song is evil because it gets in my head. And it repeats over and over and over again. And I even sing it to myself. And I'm sitting in my office at the church. The wheels of the bus go round and round. The baby on the bus goes, wah, wah, wah. So I could, I could go on how evil it is. But in all seriousness, good, I mean, excuse me, leadership matters. Leaders are, as we find even in the example of Christ, they're meek, they're humble. We see in John 13 of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's what we see as good leadership. God has entrusted these kings of their time and their talent. But what we see in time and time again, they failed. They led the people astray. And also, let me say this. Good leadership matters most importantly in the church. I say this humbly because I, I, I'm the associate pastor here. But strong pastoral leadership has to be led by men who were anchored in the Bible. That's what keeps me accountable. What Grant says on Sundays, what I say on Sundays in Bible studies, you can always rule it up against this bad boy, the living and acting Word of God. That's the standard. And as we see, and I'm not, we could go into more of this, we see churches fall away from the Word 
every single day. They fall into pragmatism. They fall into ways that are just nothing but entertainment services versus teaching the people to fear the sovereign Lord. So remember that. Good leadership is a gift from the Lord, but leadership matters. Look further into verse 8. He then goes into another proclamation of those who array themselves in foreign attire. Briefly, what he means is this foreign attire excuse me, is symbolizing the adoption of foreign gods and foreign cultures that have come into the camp. I'll just summarize it that way. It's drawing people away from, their, from excuse me, how God is or asking them to live their lives, even how, as we see in the book of Leviticus, how he's even told them how to dress we even see in the found, when um, God is establishing the temple how even the priests, the Levitical priests, are supposed to wear. The breastplate, the ephod, the linen gown, everything is told this is how you're even called to dress. Because, again, these people are, a, are to be a holy people, a chosen people, set out as an example for the whole world because Yahweh is in their midst. Jesus, even in Matthew chapter 11, when people are or looking at John the Baptist, he even calls out and says in Matthew 11, what did you expect to see? A man dressed excuse me, in soft clothing? Referring to John the Baptist. Behold, those who wear soft clothing, those are people who are in king's houses. The idea, again, is people are pursuing this idea of foreign attire, this idea of looking like they are wealthy. As you can tell, when that, you go down that path, it always leads to covetousness, and stealing, and a whole host of other sins when you begin to adopt that, style, that lifestyle that we see in verse 8. Look with me in verse 9. Now he calls out, on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. That's an interesting statement. Those who leap over the threshold. Turn back in your Bibles further into the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is what Zephaniah is referring to. 1 Samuel chapter 5. Give you context of where we are. The Philistines, the wonderful Philistines, have captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they are silly to even put it in the camp. Um, as my grandma would say, they are fools. She considered that a cuss word because it was in the Bible, full. First Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashad. Then the Philistines took the ark of, the God, of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashad rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face, da- face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in place. Which, by the way, let me stop there. What a wonderful example of what happens when you chase after a false god. God just knocks it down on its face. Verse 4, But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashad to this day. Flip back over to Zephaniah 1. That's what he is referring to. People have literally leapt over the threshold. To give you a context, this would be a rectangular space that would be before this false idol. 
that people would not even get to. Think of it like a, a holy place, a place of worship, even in that rectangular space that you see here. And people are leaping over it. And if you know anything about Dagon, I'm not sure why you would want to even study him, but he is known as a fertility god. He's a fish god. He's actually even the father of Baal. So again, remember, they're pursuing this as we saw in verse 4 in Zephaniah chapter 1. This idea of worship leaping over the threshold and, and following Dagon, look with me in verse 9, the tail end of verse 9. It's causing them to fill their master's houses. The people in their community is what Zephaniah is saying even the leadership, with violence and fraud. With violence and fraud. This is the consequence of what happens if you worship false gods. It's going to turn into violence and people being fraudulent. Interesting descriptors there, isn't it? That's what happens in your heart if you pursue false gods. Violence and fraud. Fraud, excuse me. And by the way, this is the exact opposite of what we see the Lord tell of being with your, uh, commanding His people here in Leviticus 19 that you were called to love your neighbor as yourself. We see it in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew 22. It's the exact opposite of what the law is telling the people of Judah to live. Violence and fraud and loving your neighbor as yourself. Polar opposites that we see. And that's the sin in the camp. Sin so egregious, as we see in this first point, that God is putting them as a sacrifice. It's unfaithfulness. It's covenant unfaithfulness that we find ourselves here, that the sin that is brought before the eyes of the Lord. And God is taking this sin very serious. He is calling, he's going to purge out this evil so his name will be honored. That's what we see in verses 7 through 9. Sin, God takes sin very serious. Very serious. And so Zephaniah is calling it the day of the Lord as it is. It's judgment. And this is what is brought into the people of God's life. The people of God. And this is what's in their life. Number two, write this down. The second point, now he goes into the specific punishment. So God's punishment of sin. God's punishment of sin. Look with me in verses 10 through 13. So in 10 through 13, now he's getting to the specifics. What's going to happen on this day of the Lord? Notice in verse 10, on that day declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off. And let me stop there, stopping in verse 11. What is Zephaniah referring to? He's using structural type language, architectural type language, pointing to that the holy city, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. The actual foundation, the, the, the walls that we see are going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be torn down. When you see the word fishgate, when you look at it on an actual map, that would be the northern part of the kingdom. When you see the second quarter, the loud crash from the hills, from when I studied the map and I studied the text, I feel that it's from the south. So from the north and to the south, we see the judgment of God coming. It's all-encompassing. You can't get away from it. From the forwards to the backwards, God's punishment is coming to the whole, to the holy city. And this, and Jerusalem will be destroyed. And notice in this 
the structural type language, this architectural type language that Zephaniah is using here. It's also poetic in the sense of look at what's being described from the people, that's coming from the people. Notice crying, wailing, crying and wailing. It is terms that are depicting a deep sadness, heartache, it's a loss of life. And this is not a type of wailing, by the way, that we most of the time see, especially in the New Testament. Do you remember in John chapter 11 when Lazarus died and Mary and Martha are there and there's a whole great host of people there, a funeral party is there? Those people would be hired out to wail and to lament the death of a loved one in John chapter 11. That's not what we find here. That's, that is wailing the loss of, of life, or a true loss of life. This wailing is similar to what we find in the book of Exodus again. You don't have to flip there. I'll flip there for us. But in Exodus chapter 11, you find the final plague being delivered to Pharaoh. And the final plague is what? The death of the, of the firstborn. Pretty serious plague. Exodus 11.6 says this. There should be a great cry throughout all all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been heard nor ever will be again. Your firstborn. Pretty serious wailing when you think about it. But what Zephaniah is also pointing to is even deeper. That wailing there from the firstborn that will be heard in Exodus 11 is deep. But Zephaniah takes it a little bit further. Their wailing is selfishness. You know why? Because they're seeing their livelihoods come down right before their eyes. Their idols are being crushed right before their eyes. Because their sorrow, though it's deep, though it's of anguish, though it's wailing, though it's crying, they have, their crying is over the loss, look with me, of their silver. There in verse 11. The fish gate would be a place where people would go and trade and barter. There's economic activity taking place, livelihood, transact, uh, fish and, and livestock and those types of things are being um, transacted there. Even when you see in the second quarter, that would be another place of trade and bartering. That's what Jeremiah, excuse me, that is what Zephaniah is pointing to. They are severely upset because their livelihood, their idols, most importantly, are being thrown down and being judged before the sovereign Lord. It's very similar to this idea of what Zephaniah is wanting them to see. It's like John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus approaches the woman at the well, and she's talking about water, and he's talking about water. They're crossing over each other. Very similar to what we see. Zephaniah is addressing the heart. You're not faithful. You've broken the covenant before the Lord. What they're wailing and being crying over, Zephaniah is being sad over their heart of unfaithfulness. They're being sad because their silver is being demolished. Their livelihoods are being turned upside down. It's very similar to the old Shakespearean tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. And now, I know you're probably asking, Kenny, do you really like to listen to Shakespeare? I do. I like to listen to an audible. Something about Shakespeare makes you, um, makes you want to go around and just talk like the old English. But nonetheless, you remember the old Shakespearean tragedy? Remember the uh, Romeo's friend, Mercutio? He's bombastic. He's loud. He's that inappropriate friend. Do you remember when Romeo falls in love with Juliet, a Capulet, an enemy? Do you remember when 
Marcuccio gets in that squabble with Tybalt and eventually takes his life. You remember when Mar- and Romeo over and over and over again is saying, please don't do this, please don't fight him, please don't do this, please don't fight him. What Tybalt, excuse me, what Mercutio doesn't see is that Romeo is in love. What he's seeing is his friend or actually his relative being annoying. The reason why he's pulling him away is because even though Tybalt, being an enemy of, of, of Mercutio's family, of Romeo's family, what he doesn't see is that his friend Romeo is in love. They're talking over each other. And that's what we see even here with the people of Judah. And then it gets a little more serious. We see in 11 and 12 this idea, similar to that we saw in verse 3, this idea of sweeping away. The punishment gets worse here. And here we see an active Lord in the midst of his people. An active Lord in the midst of his people. Where am I getting that? In verse 12, it says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Yahweh is not a distant God. He's a personal God. Let me say that again. The Lord is not distant from his people. We will see in chapter 3 that he is, when the people repent and follow him, he is in fact a Lord who is rejoicing over them and in their midst. We'll get to that here in the next two weeks. But what we see this idea of searching with lamps is the Spirit of God is searching all hearts of the people of Judah. All the hearts of the people of Judah. Pretty terrifying as well to realize because nothing is hidden from the Lord's sight. Amos, again, talking about the day of the Lord, carries this theme over from this idea of the Spirit of God searching the heart of man. He says, if they hid themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and shall bite them. Second Kings, chapter 10, Jehu getting rid of the worshipers of Baal. Then Jehu went to the house of Baal with Jehoahab and the son of Rechab and said to the worshippers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord. The Spirit of God is searching men's heart here in Zephaniah and he is doing it even this day. Christian, I would be remiss not to say this, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, indwells one who has come to faith in Christ. If there's a sin going on in your life, something that is weighing on your conscience, know that your sin is not hidden from the Lord. You can't put it in a corner. You can't put it at your own fish gate. The Spirit of God is searching your heart even now. Maybe there's something that you need to confess before the Lord. Even for those who are watching online tonight or listening to it later, maybe the Lord is bringing something to the attention of you, the forefront of your mind and your heart. And I pray now that you will confess it before the Lord because he sees it. Nothing is hidden from the sight of Yahweh. But then, from the Spirit of the Lord searching with these lamps, what's he searching out? Look with me in verse 12. Those who are complacent. Those who are complacent. The sin of being complacent, or maybe I'll use a modern-day vernacular, lukewarmness. Being lukewarm is another way for us to understand verse 12. It's a sin. That's what Zephaniah is calling out. Complacency, lukewarmness is a sin. And here's reality. Practically speaking, this one's a hard one to catch. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, being okay with the status quo is pretty easy 
to do. We like our own personal behaviors, our own faculty, our human faculties like comfort. It's easy for us just to go about our walk with the Lord and yet forget that he has called us, as Paul has reminded us in Philippians 1, to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. It's easy for us to, com- to be complacent. And the sin of complacency, like I said, is hard to find because the reason why is because that sin of complacency, the lukewarmness, what it does, it comforts our own selfish desires. We're okay with it. We get comfortable. It's very much, you ever been to a water park, the Lazy River? I, th- I think they're called Lazy Rivers. People just sit in those inner tubes, and it's, fun. it's almost comical to watch. They love it. People love to get them. They just float. It's almost like there's just a dead body there, just laying in that inner tube and going around and around and around, and it just carries them over and over and over again. Maybe I shouldn't say a dead body, but, you know, you get the idea. You're just limp in relaxation. It's easy for us to be on that lazy river, so to speak. I remember once heard a pastor one time say, it is easier for a Christian to go with the flow of the river versus going upstream, going against the current, against what the world is telling us or teaching us how to live. Let's do some more Bible flipping. The Lord warns his people not to be complacent. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen, Bible flipping is good for the soul. Also keeps you awake, keeps you ready, gets your fingers working. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look with me, starting in verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I have commanded you today, lest when you've eaten and are, and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why? It's tempting. Why does Moses talk about, don't forget who brought you out of Egypt? It's a picture of salvation. God, out of his his mercy and grace, brought them out of slavery, out of the bondage of being under Pharaoh, and brought them into the promised land to be, as we can see, fruitful, to multiply, to worship, for God is in their midst. And that's why the people of Israel, the, the people of Judah here, are a chosen people. They have been brought They are God's special people. They have a purpose to live, just like we do, just as Christians do. And we see the same thing again, if you want to turn there with me, back into Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You don't have to flip there. I'll flip there for us and read. Again, the seven churches of Asia. Listen to this idea of this complacency, this lukewarmness. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and your patience and endurance, and I know how you can bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not and found in them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for your name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, 
where you have fallen. Repent. There it is. And do the works that you've had at first. Flip back over to Zephaniah. Ephesus, the church who was called to walk worthy in a manner to which they had been called, to walk worthy of the Lord. They lost their love. They lost their, their first love. They have become complacent. And listen, let me tell you something. This sin of complacency, I think it's an, I think it's an evangelical church, whether we realize it or not. It's easy for the Christian, just like I said, to be okay with the status quo. Yeah, I'll get to my Bible in a little bit. Okay, I'll get to prayer when it, when it comes to maybe like a season of, of suffering or hardship. We are called to be, be a people that are a set aflame with the love and, the, and have a deep desire to fear the Lord, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul, our mind and our strength. And listen, I'm warning us because complacency, especially in this day and age, is so easy to do, especially with technology. I was reading a study recently from actually UNC Chapel Hill from some medical research of how social media is literally transforming teenagers' minds. It's helping them to be complacent. It's helping them to have struggles with anxiety, depression, identity crisis. We see that left and right, don't we? But that's what getting before our phones all the time do. We get complacent. We like it. Those, those neurons fire because all we're doing is sitting there and watching post after post, image after image. As a matter of if you're uh, reading the Wall Street Journal, I'm going to think all of you are, or if you're just getting on Instagrams, Facebook, whatever the case may be, it's all the same. We sit there and we just soak ourselves of just being okay just to scroll, work that magical thumb over and over and over again. We have to be watchful. And let me give you these points of application to flee spiritual apathy. Number one, honesty is the best policy. What do I mean be that be that excuse me, be by mean by that, excuse me, is to be honest before the Lord. Be honest before the Lord. Ask him now, am I complacent? Am I lukewarm like the church in Ephesus? Father, is there something in my life, like I previously said, that is pulling me away from worshiping you to falling before these, a false idol, whether it's success, the praise of man, money, power, that next job, whatever the case may be. Fill in the blank with that false idol. Pray like David did in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and see if there be any grievous way in me, but lead me in the way of everlasting. Number two, pray. Pray without ceasing. I've been reading. I've been on a biography kick when I get time to read for personal edification. I've been reading um, about John Knox, if you don't know any about the Scottish reformer. Um, yes, I am reading about a Presbyterian. Don't hold it against me. Um, but I've also been reading a biography about George Woodfield, and I'm going to encourage you to pick up any biography about George Woodfield. But George Woodfield is one of the greatest preachers here in America and as well as over in Great Britain, traveled numerous times back and forth to preach the gospel. But you know what made his preaching effective? Biography after biography has ascribed to this. What made his preaching effective, what made his heart aflame for Christ was prayer. Listen to this quote from Whitfield. Be much in secret prayer. Converse less with man and more with God. One of his biographers, Robert Phillips, said this, Whitfield's prayer life was the main source of his spiritual success. The grand secret of Whitfield's power 
as we have seen and we have felt, was his devotional spirit. Had he been less prayerful, he would have been less powerful. We are called to pray without ceasing. We are called to be a people praying daily for the needs of others, our church, and ourselves. Go to God in prayer like we just sung. The third thing, I'm going to call this point of application out of 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. Bring above all the parchments. Get into the Word of God. Get into the Word of God. Paul there in 2 Timothy 4, these are his last words. And of all the things to say, what does he say? Bring me the Word. Above all, bring me the the parchments. He's imprisoned. I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure he's hungry, cold, he even asked for his cloak. But what does he want? The word. Above all, bring me the parchments. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll help us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and it will awaken our hearts to a holy God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when describing the, the success spiritual success, that is, of the Reformation. I love his quote, I did nothing, the Word did everything. And that's exactly what he did. He put the Word of God in the people's hands. So, that's what will help us flee spiritual apathy. And by the way, just pastorally speaking, every day I pray for you. Every day I pray for you. You know what I pray? Grant says it a lot. Our logo back here says it. I pray for you to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. The reality of living before the face of God is very much similar to what we see here of I will search Jerusalem with lamps. God sees everything. And as a Christian, you are called to live before the face of God because whether you realize it or not, you and I are going to give an account of our life. Everything we think, everything we do, the responsibilities that he has given us, our job, our families, everything. One day, we will have to give it account before our Lord. So I pray for you to live Corindeo. I, I pray for you to live, to be a people awakened to a holy God. As we see in Isaiah chapter 8, that, we will, that the Lord our God will be our fear, and he will make us tremble before Yahweh. And that leads us to our third and final point, looking at verses 14 through 17. So again, we have seen the proclamation of the day of the Lord. We've seen God's punishment of sin, of what the day of the Lord is going to hold. And this punishment from verses 10 through 13. And now in verses 14 through 18, our third point, God calls the people to repent and to believe in him called to repent and to believe in him. Now the prophet, going back to verse 7, he says that the day of the Lord is near. So now he's moving into a twofold point here with this day of the Lord is near. One, it is near within their lifetime, within the next couple of years. We'll get to that here in a second. But he's also pointing to the end times, an eschatological viewpoint and Zephaniah's word from the Lord. Let's talk about how the nearness, i.e., within the years. Let me use that, that vernacular to get our minds around it. About 17 years after Josiah's reign, around 605 B.C., Judah will, will be under the authority of Babylon, a, a vassal of Babylon. They're in control by Babylon. Both 
of King Josiah's successors, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, are evil. They're wicked. And in fact, thousands of Jews are even deported. And we even see in 586 B.C. that Jerusalem is destroyed. Again, what we saw in verses 10 and 11 and 12. So within their lifetime, they are going to see the judgment of God unfold right before their eyes. Right before their eyes. Could you imagine that? 17 years after Josiah, that's coming down the pipe. Think about it even in the context of today. If you knew this was coming 17 years, let me just ask you something and ask it before the Lord. What would be your response to that? 17 years, I pray. Lord willing, I'll be here. Closer to even being more perfect. So I know this day, it's a joke, guys. That this day the Lord is coming. But think about how humbling it is. 17 years after Josiah's reign, this is coming down the pipeline for a lot of people in their lifetime. And look at the, the description of this day. Look with me in verse 15. It's gloomy. People will be in distress and anguish, ruin, devastation, clouds of thick darkness, a trumpet blast there in verse 16. A man will cry aloud. Lofty battalions, fortified cities there will be destroyed. Again, we are seeing the, the Babylonian taking, uh, take down there in verse 16. That's coming, the enemies of God being a tool of judgment there, of what Zephaniah is describing in verse 16. This picture here is very similar to what we would find of the terror of a theophany of God. Remember when God met there with the people on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19? On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And then Sinai was wrapped in smoke, and the Lord descended on fire. Smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the mountain trembled. In verse 19, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Pretty terrifying, wouldn't it, if you were there on Mount Sinai? Amos again, this idea of the day of the Lord, describes very similar language that we see here in 15 and 16 and Zephaniah 1. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if man fled from a lion and a bear met with him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord of darkness and of light and gloom and no brightness in it? See what's described here? And look with me in verse 15. Look at the repetition of the day. Six times it's repeated. And this echo, what Zephaniah is pointing to, is creation. Six days the Lord was created. And what the reason why Zephaniah is pulling that over for us, because what we see in the creation account is God is establishing order. He brings light. He brings life. But what we see described here is the, a full reversal of taking place here in Zephaniah 1.15. It's darkness and gloom. It's now disorder. And why is it in disorder? Because of sin. Sin against a holy God. Now, I've said sin against the holy God del deliberately now four times, at least four times. I hope you're catching every word that comes out of my mouth. I know you are. I'm going to believe that you are. 
But this sin against the holy God is something that we need to understand because we have to direct our attention to whom is holy. Not us, but Yahweh. He is holy. We see over and over and over again the Lord is holy. Isaiah, in his vision, he saw the seraphim crying over and over and over again in response to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth, whole earth is filled with his glory. Revelation 4.8, in John's Revelation, I saw the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around them. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's holiness is all of who God is. It sets them apart. He's pure He's transcendent. He's above everything else. He cannot sin, nor can even be near sin. He's majestic. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's gracious. He's merciful. In God's election of Israel, and this is why, this is why he's bringing this prophetic message from Zephaniah. This is why this message is so strong, because these are to be a people who are to called to be holy. Leviticus 19.2. They were to be a blessing. Genesis chapter 12. They were to be fruitful. Deuteronomy 8. They were people who were called to love the Lord their God with everything they have. Deuteronomy chapter 6. They were called to obey the Lord. In Exodus chapter 20. They were to worship him. Deuteronomy verses 6, 7, and 8. Israel did nothing to be, cho- to be chosen. They had nothing on their side. They didn't have glamour. They didn't have success. We were reminded of this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than all the peoples. Because it was the Lord loved you and kept the oath and swore to your forefathers and brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the land of slavery from the power of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know the Lord your God. He is faithful. He is faithful in keeping his covenant his covenant of love to thousands of generations, those who love him and keep his commandments. This is what Israel, this is what Judah is supposed to be, a faithful people, a covenant-keeping people. They're to be holy and blameless, but they broke their covenant vow. They were the people to whom the Messiah would come from, but yet they failed to see that Yahweh is redeeming. He is the Redeemer. And out of him, of course, Jesus will come. Israel failed to see this promise. They failed to see this blessing. Israel sinned against a holy God. And ladies and gentlemen, so did you. So did me. We sinned. We can't escape the curse of Adam. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have transgressed a holy God, and this is what Zephaniah is bringing to the forefront. Sin against a holy God. That's why it's so serious, because most importantly, going back to the issue, it's the heart of the issue. It's the heart of the people of Judah. This is why God is sad. This is why he is, his heart is breaking over this sin, because their heart is far from the Lord. They are not seeking the Lord, as we see in verse 6, and not inquiring of him. And it gets even worse, ladies and gentlemen. Look with me in verse 17. This judgment is being described. Blood is going to be poured out on the streets. Flesh will be scattered. Gold and silver 
will not save them. Nothing man-made can save us. It's humbling words, isn't it? It goes back to the same idea with Paul. Paul, over and over again in Romans, brings this message that we cannot save ourselves. It is a gift from God. Ephesians 1, it's the grace of God to which we have been saved. It's not of our own doing. It's all from God. And folks, this is what we have to see. This is what we have to see as what breaking, this is what's breaking God's heart. But Zephaniah, like I said, is also pointing to an end time. Flip over to 2 Peter, real briefly, as we close our time. 2 Peter, towards the tail end, chapter 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3. The day of the Lord will come. Zephaniah is talking about this eschatological, this future day that will come. Starting in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand day, years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me stop there. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, with Zephaniah? Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away, and when the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done, it will be exposed. You see a lot of connection there, don't you, with Zephaniah? A lot of connection there. Let me be quick as we're closing in our time here. This connection from Zephaniah and the Apostle Peter. Of course, we know in Zephaniah, this day of the Lord, I do believe the Lord's return is imminent. But I also understand, listen, we can talk on and on about eschatological things. I do know that certain things have to take place. For example, like the man of lawlessness, lawlessness the Antichrist. But what we see here, the pressing need that Zephaniah, and I believe the apostle is bringing to the forefront is that there is urgency for the believer to know since the day of the Lord is coming, we are to live every single day like he's coming. The day of the Lord may, remember with Jesus, I don't even know this day. The Lord will return at 7.08 p.m. It's humbling. So there's a sense of urgency in the sense of that Zephaniah and Peter are wanting us to live for the glory of God today to live with that fire in our belly and most importantly in our heart, to please the Lord with everything that we have, to make our life count for the glory of King Jesus. But here's the other part. The second point, repent. Come to the Lord today. I beg you with everything in me, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, come to Christ today. For those even watching online or are going to be listening to this later in the coming weeks and months, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, do not harden your heart. Come to faith in Christ today. Because a day of judgment will come. A day of judgment will come. And this prophetic word that Zephaniah brings, this titanic word from the Lord that Zephaniah brings is a harsh reality. But this judgment it's near. It's near. And we have to live every single day that this day may come on Sunday. It may come Sunday night. We have no idea. And so don't be caught off guard. Don't be caught off guard, Christian. But don't be caught off guard, unbeliever. If you are anxious tonight over your eternal state, 
Kenny, what are you talking about this day of the Lord? I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know about what this sovereign Lord looks like. Come talk to me. I'll be, have, I'll be here afterwards. Grant's here. Talk to Grant. And do it tonight. Do not wait. But if there's something going on in your heart, sin in the camp, so to speak, confess it. Because this judgment will come and we will have to give an account, like I said just a few moments ago. So let me close our time. As we look at the end of chapter 1, this is a hard word of judgment, but it's also a call to repent. And you see this, this heart of Zephaniah, this word from the Lord, this is very much also a heartbeat from the sovereign Lord. He desires his people to repent and believe. We saw that there even in Second Peter, for people to repent and come to know the Lord. But this day of the Lord, it's coming with a reckoning. And I pray, I pray that we will be on the right side when the, when the clock stops and the Lord returns. And so the question is, where will you stand? Where will you stand at the end? Will you be like we as believers will in Revelation 21 describes? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Can you imagine that? It's so hard for us to imagine that, living here in this day and age. Or are you going to be separated from the presence of God and cast into eternal judgment? It's a serious question. And a serious answer is demanded, as we can see here from the prophet Zephaniah. So what say you? What say you? Let's pray. Father, Lord, this is a hard word. Lord, one that is not light. It's not easy. So, Father, I, I, I pray. I pray, Lord, for the Christians in here, Lord, help us to see the immediacy the urgency to walk closely with Christ, not to be complacent, but Lord, to set aflame the fire of the Lord Jesus within our hearts, to be faithful to the call of the upper call in Christ Jesus, as Paul commends in Philippians 3. Father, I pray for those who aren't or are scared about this day, that we're anxious, Lord, about this day of the Lord. I pray, Lord, that you work in their hearts to come to faith in Jesus today, tonight, right now. So, Lord, thank you for this message from Zephaniah. And, Lord, help us to heed the call to live a life with a purpose and a glory for King Jesus. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.